The Chaser Report. News you can't trust. Welcome to a bonus edition of The Chaser Report. This is just about our entire conversation with Nick Bryant. He was a BBC correspondent for many years, only just left. And his most recent book about America is called When America Stopped Being Great. In a moment on The Chaser Report, Nick Bryant. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Nick Bryant recently finished up several decades working for the BBC as a senior foreign correspondent. He worked in Australia for many years. And then, most recently, he was in the United States where he was up close for the whole of the Trump era. His latest book is called When America Stopped Being Great. So, Nick, you're obviously a great lover of America. Where did that begin? Because throughout the book, you're also quite critical of America, and yet you still seem to love it. Dom, I think my mind migrated to America long before I actually stepped foot in the country, and that didn't take place until I was about 16 years old. I mean, I was always more interested in Washington than Westminster. I could quote more presidential speeches than prime ministerial speeches. I mean, I guess like so many kids around the world. I mean, I just grew up on, you know, those great American kid shows, those those great American cop shows. And, and I, I was just absolutely fascinated by the country. And when I went to America, it really consummated that, that sense because I arrived there at this extraordinary moment. It was the eve of the Los Angeles Olympics. It was this amazing summertime of American resurgence, really. I mean, America had been in the doldrums, what with Vietnam and Watergate and the Iranian hostage crisis. And then in 1984, they hosted the Olympics and they had this modern day gold rush. I mean, you remember they won virtually every medal, it seemed, because of the Soviet boycott. McDonald's had this scratch card promotion at the time, which they decided to do before the Soviets had boycotted, where if you scratched off the card and the event that you got, they won a gold, you you got the Big Mac, the silver, you got the fries, the bronze, you got a Coke. And I basically feasted that entire summer on free fast food. And whenever I hear the chant USA, USA, which basically echoed throughout the country in that summer of 1984, I kind of think that somebody's going to hand me a free burger. And I really fell in love with America at that stage. I love the sense of possibility. I love the sense that people thought their lives were going to be better and their kids' lives were going to be better. And I guess that's something that really changed. I noticed that when I went back to live in America about eight years ago. Um, people just didn't seem to believe anymore in the American dream. And so when Donald Trump says the American dream is dead, I think you know millions of voters actually agree with him. And it's interesting you mentioned 1984 because so much of the book is, is about Ronald Reagan and how he really changed America in a very enduring way. And certainly there were plenty of aspects of that that I wasn't really across. Um, in what way did Ronald Reagan create the America that we see today? Well, in 1984, of course, Ronald Reagan perfectly encapsulated 
the mood of the country when he came up with that ringing slogan, it's morning again in America. That was his re-election slogan. They came up with this amazing ad that was probably the most successful political ad in US history. And Ronald Reagan won 49 out of 50 states, a landslide. You don't get landslides anymore in American politics because the country is so divided. But you did back then. He would have won 50 states if it hadn't been for just a few thousand votes in Minnesota, which is where his Democratic opponent, Walter Mondale, came from. And so... um, Reagan, you know, seemed to be this sort of unifying figure, somebody that could bring the whole country together. But, you know, on reflection, Reagan was really the godfather of polarisation in so many ways. Um, he first emerged in 1964, which was an incredibly polarising year because that was the year that the, the Civil Rights Act was passed. Reagan opposed it. Um, it was the year when the whole landscape of American politics changed. I mean, prior to 1964, the the South used to be Democrat. They hated the Republicans because the Republicans were the party of Abraham Lincoln. But after 1964 and the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which, which basically ended segregation in the South, the South started becoming more reliably Republican. And Ronald Reagan was a part of that. He opposed the Civil Rights Act. But there are other ways in which he sort of brought about polarization. He really brought together the modern day conservative movement in its present form, this alliance of gun enthusiasts, evangelical Christians, supply-side economists, (laughs) um, people who really didn't believe that government had a major role to play in American life. And I think also in the Reagan years, you had that sort of greed is good ethos um, that really changed corporate America. Prior to 1980s, I think corporate America really did try to look out for for everybody that worked for the corporations, whether you're the lowest paid or the highest paid. But what we saw in the Reagan years was this massive discrepancy between executive pay and shop floor pay. And one of the reasons why America is so polarised is because the economy is so polarised. And we really see the beginnings of that during the Reagan era. There were sort of echoes of Trump, even when he first started, wasn't there? There was a real show business to to the way he operated. Yeah, I mean, the obvious thing to say, obviously, is that the movie star president paved the way for the reality TV star president. But it goes a bit deeper than that, because Reagan really did create the modern presidency. And the modern presidency is a very performative presidency. So much of it is about what you do in front of the camera, rather than what you do behind the scenes in the kind of nitty gritty of day to day governance. Um, Reagan really wasn't a full participant in his own administration in the same way that Trump wasn't. There's a great story of uh, Jim Baker, who was his chief of staff. He became his secretary of state, famous Texas politician, um, real sort of black belt in Washington, complained to Reagan the night before a big economic summit that he just hadn't done his homework. And Reagan looked at him and said, Jim, you've got to realize the sound of music was on last night. And that personified, you know, Reagan devoured movies. <laughs> He watched something like 360 during the course of his presidency in the same way that Trump devoured cable TV news. Mm. Um, you know, Reagan was always looking for the big set piece uh, foreign affairs speech, the most famous one of which obviously was in front of the Brandenburg Gate when he told Gorbachev to tear down this wall. Reagan really created the modern day State of the Union, those moments where they look up into the balcony and they cite these human heroes with these stories that personify or supposedly their political agenda. You know, that was a Reagan invasion. Um, He really turned it into a performative presidency where the people who occupied the White House had to be performers. And it is not a coincidence that, you know, up until Trump, there was only one one term president. It was George Herbert Walker Bush. He was probably the worst performer on TV. And I think that's one of the reasons why he became a one term president. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. But um, one of the things I really got from the book was a reappreciation of how good he was at the traditional stuff of presidents, things like statecraft, winning a war with unprecedented success. And all this didn't seem to matter according to the new rules of the presidency that Reagan had established. Yeah, George Herbert Walker Bush was very much a statesman rather than a showman. And I think that was one of his big problems. I mean, an example of that came after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And he did a press conference in the White House briefing room where the White House correspondents were incredulous that he was staying in Washington rather than heading to Berlin for a victory lap. I mean, America had essentially just won the Cold War and people wondered, why aren't you having a celebration here? And he knew that if he did celebrate, it would rub the noses of the Russians in it. And it would create real problems for Gorbachev with the hardliners in the Kremlin. Another instance of that came after the Gulf War. I mean, an extraordinary triumph, not just militarily, but diplomatically as well. I mean, America assembled this very broad-based coalition. They got support of the United Nations from China and Russia, which, you know, these days would be obviously, you know, beyond them. And after the Gulf War, um, they said the commander-in-chief should take part in the ticker tape welcome in New York for the returning forces. And he said, no, you know, it's the soldiers that fought this war, not me. And again, it spoke of this kind of um, modesty um, in an office that no longer rewarded modesty. It's interesting, too, that you go back and look at the culture war as fitting in with this as, as well, and, and the roots of that, people like Grover Norquist, and how that has really come to dominate the Republican Party to the point where issues like abortion, which which we see on the front page of America once again at the moment, are all that matter. And it's to do with rights rather than facts and ideas. And I I thought that was a really interesting analysis. How did that evolve? Well, the Republican Party really used to be the party of Wall Street. Um, It used to be the party of the Northeast. Uh, And then it became the party of the South and it became the party of the Bible Belt and it became the party of the megachurch. And a lot of evangelical Christians um, started supporting uh, the Republican Party. And also these evangelical Christians took a look at what had happened in, in the 1960s when a lot of liberal uh, people of faith, a lot of clergymen, had joined with the civil rights movement and really given it a moral force and a moral authority. And they thought they should do the same thing, but from a right-wing perspective. And the issue that they decided to champion, of course, was abortion. And abortion became this litmus test within the Republican Party. And abortion obviously became uh, one of the big angry fault lines of American politics, which rumbles, obviously, to this day, I mean, given what we're seeing in Texas right now. And then during the Clinton era, because that was another sort of pivotal moment, wasn't it, during the the Clinton impeachment, um, where that sort of set in train a whole lot of other 
parts of the Trump sort of ascendancy, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, look, the arrival of Bill Clinton coincided with two things. Um, one was the end of the Cold War. And the Cold War had imposed a discipline on American politics. You know, there was this sense of patriotic bipartisanship. There was this sense that both the Republicans and the Democrats had a common enemy in the Soviet Union. Now, when that enemy went, that glue that had sort of brought the country together just disappeared. And this coincided with a generational shift in American politics as well. The greatest generation, the generation that had fought the Second World War, people like George Herbert Walker Bush were ousted, basically. They had the torch wrenched away from them by the baby boomer generation, people like Bill Clinton, people like Newt Gingrich. Now, their formative political experience had been in the 1960s, the culture wars of the 1960s, and they brought that mentality to Washington. Washington became the new Berlin, the place where America fought its ideological battles. And alas, it was a battle that was fought internally between American and American. But you also mentioned uh, Clinton as the beginning of the idea that you could simply shrug off scandal um and ironically that came back to bite hillary clinton <laughs> when she ran against um so she suffered twice over didn't she for bill yeah Clinton's when you look at the origins really. of political lying i mean an author of it was bill clinton you know i did not have sex with that woman miska lewinsky a big lie but a lie that really helped him politically it bought him time um, he managed to sort of get some Democratic support on Capitol Hill. There had been talk about him having to resign, that the Democrats would drive down Pennsylvania and tell him it was time to go. And what Clinton also did in the Monica Lewinsky scandal, and, and Donald Trump learned a lesson from this as well, especially when Access Hollywood was, was coming, was to frame the question. Um, not so much a case of right and wrong, but whose side do you want? Um, who do you want to win? Um, because if I get impeached and removed from office, the Republicans have won. Do you really want to give Newt Gingrich a victory? And Donald Trump really played from that playbook when Access Hollywood came and he could basically ask the question, you know, who do you want to win? Do you want Hillary to be the beneficiary of this or do you want to keep the Republican, you know, do you want to get a Republican in the White House? Again, it was it was playing on a polarised framing um, and... Bill Clinton was an absolute master of that. It, just getting now to the 2000 election, which was another sort of pivotal moment, uh, you know, the recount there, um, one of the fascinating things I thought in the book was just the, the it was an all-star cast that went down as part of the Republican sort of um, <laughs> recount team. I mean, it was just basically everyone who's now there today. Well, two Supreme Court justices for a start. John Roberts was a key lawyer during that time. Um, mm. So too was Brett Kavanaugh. And curiously, some of the people on the Democratic side who are now playing a very big part in national politics, Ron Klain, who's the chief of staff in the White House, he was involved in that fight as well. And I think that was very useful to him in the aftermath of the 2020 election because he'd learned a lot of the lessons from 2000. One of the lessons that the Republicans learned was, you know, make the narrative early on. The narrative that they put out there was that George W. Bush had won, that Al Gore was a sore loser. And that really helped them, I think, in building momentum and creating a legitimacy around the idea that George W. Bush had won, which helped when the Supreme Court finally intervened and basically made him a victor. And I think in 2020, people like Ron Klain, very early on, were saying, 
you know, Joe Biden's the victor here. Um, he and, and building that narrative. I mean, it really began the moment the polls had mm. shut. I remember I was in the car park in Delaware. I was actually with Ron Clay, and I went up to him and said, "Ron, you know, tell us, tell us how you feel in the camp." He said, "We've won. We have won." We, he said, "We've we've lost Florida." But we've won Georgia, we've won Arizona, and we've won those three crucial Rust Belt states, Pennsylvania, um, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And he was right, but I also think he was trying to create the narrative that Biden was a victor. And that became very useful over the coming days, of course, when Donald Trump questioned whether Biden had won. But but the other lesson learned during that 2000 recount was that... uh, Voter suppression was a very useful strategy for the Republicans. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that was a real blow to American democracy. I mean, I talk about three convulsions in the book. One was the economic convulsion of 2008, the Great Recession. One was obviously the the national security convulsion of, of September the 11th. And the other was the democratic convulsion of of the 2000 election. I think a lot of people lost a lot of faith in American democracy during that election, not just because of the intervention of the Supreme Court, um, that 5-4 ruling that was basically along party lines, basically on ideological lines, all the Conservatives Mm. voted for Bush, all the Democrats voted for Gore, um, but also the sight of all that voter suppression in Florida. I have no doubt um, that more voters that day went to the polls in Florida wanting to vote for Al Gore. Some of them were blocked from doing so. Many of them were African-Americans. And ever since, the Republicans have realised they face a demographic death spiral. We are approaching uh, a majority-minority country. You know, more people are going to be of colour than white people in American elections. The Republicans realise that, and now they are pursuing a voter suppression strategy across America. Uh, I mean, some people now speak of blue states and voter suppression states. And I think we have reached a real crisis in democracy um, where Republicans have not only become anti-democratic party, you know, some of them have become almost anti-democratic. And Mm. you trace in the book the way that really white supremacy is a way of winning elections goes back decades, which is something I didn't really understand to that same degree. But I'm keen to ask you about the system because... One of the things you learn from the book, if your knowledge of um, American politics from the 70s and 80s isn't as deep uh, as, as yours is, but I didn't realise how well the system used to work. To me, it's always been sclerotic and tribal and very hard to get anything done, even if you win the Senate and the presidency, as the Democrats have now. It's enormously hard to pass anything because the opposition simply say no. But you point out that it didn't used to be like that, that people used to work together and argue things on their merits. Do you think the system is irredeemably broken or um, is there hope? Look, I do think the system is irredeemably broken at the moment. I think one of the big problems in America is that they regard the Constitution as having an almost Quranic status. They regard these as sacred tablets that should never be changed. And the founding fathers, of course, never thought that. They thought this was an an experiment in a kind of form of democracy. They didn't really like mass democracy. They wanted representative democracy, and those two things were very different. And actually, that thinking has created many of the problems that we have today because they created institutions like the Senate, where you'd have two st- two senators per state, regardless of, of the population size, and that's created huge problems. Um, but, yeah, I do think the system really has problems. Um, it works when there's compromise. And as you said, there was compromise in the 1950s. Part of that was because of the Cold War. Part of that was this spirit of 
patriotic bipartisanship. Part of it was because a lot of politicians had served together in a real war, World War II, and they didn't see the need to fight a political war in Washington. But that compromise has now disappeared in American politics. And a lot of the moderates who used to sort of work out those deals have gone. Many of them are primaried, as you know. I mean, if you compromise with the Democrats and, you know, on the other side too, some Democrats compromise with Republicans, often these days, actually almost always these days, they face a primary challenge from somebody further to the right or further to the left. And that, again, has been an accelerant of polarisation. It's ironic, isn't it, that given that they're so Talmudic um, about the Constitution, that they also go on about the First and Second Amendment all the time. But sorry, Charles, you had a question. (laughs) No, I was going to say, like a lot of my American friends uh, are sort of convinced now that the sort of laws that the Republicans are bringing in that will allow the sort of ratify... So Trump, in the the 2020 election, tried to sort of get the state committees to strike out Mm. the results, and, and of course, none of them did it, like the electoral commissions, basically. And a lot of my American friends are now desperately worried that actually next time around... Those electoral commissions have now been replaced with people who will actually just refuse to ratify the thing and, and that that is where the game has shifted. Do you think that's true? Look, a lot of people regarded the outcome of the 2020 election as this constitutional triumph. It was proof that the constitution works because ultimately, you know, Congress actually ratified the results. You know, you didn't get state legislatures overturning the, uh, the results in their states. But... <laughs> You know, it was a close-run thing. And let's just imagine a counterfactual. Let's imagine that the Republicans were in control of the House of Representatives and the Republicans had been in clear control of the Senate when it came to counting the votes. And then you would have had the real possibility that Donald Trump could have overturned the results of the 2020 election. So it wasn't so much that the Constitution was the safeguard in this instance, it was the fact that the Democratic majority in the House was the safeguard. And I think that's often overlooked. You know, my argument would be that you really need a huge constitutional overhaul uh, to remedy a lot of the problems in America. The problem is, if you have that constitutional over, over, uh, overhaul, you would basically be handing victory to the Democrats for quite some time to come. And obviously, then you would be in the position where you would have a very strong backlash from the right and a possibly violent backlash from the right-wing militia groups. It is interesting, though, because the argument is made, and I know Democrats put a lot of faith in this and it never seems to transpire, but perhaps it did this time for the first time, that demographics are going to be the end to all of this, that the party, that the country is becoming so diverse that um, even the notion of an ethnically white majority is doomed, that in the end the Democrats will have permanent control unless this sort of stuff comes through. Do you think that those hopes are overblown? Well, that's certainly where the demographics are heading. And that's why so many Republicans thought that Donald Trump's message that he began with when he came down that golden elevator, escalator, sorry, in 2016 was was so ridiculous and and just wouldn't be viable i mean he was he was basically alienating 
all the Hispanic voters in America. And people thought, this is crazy. This comes at a time when the Republican Party needs to reach out to that constituency, to reach out to that demographic. Donald Trump was doing completely the opposite. But he calculated that there were enough sort of angry white people out there who hadn't voted in the past who would vote for him. And he got that calculation right. And the the vagaries of the Electoral College help because obviously that white vote was concentrated in the states that he needed to win but yeah the republicans really do face a demographic problem and that's why they like the system as it is because the system as it is has always helped the minority it's always helped the minority to block things from happening and in many instances in presidential or in recent two recent cases in presidential elections it's actually helped the person who won less votes actually win the presidency. George W. Bush, obviously, in 2000, and Donald Trump in uh, 2016. I, I noticed that you're no longer living in America. <laughs> you've moved to Australia. What were you um, thinking? Does that mean you've, it's a, it's you, a prison. you've given up some? Donald Trump Jr. said that this was a gulag that we are living in now. <laughs> but have you given up a little bit on, on America? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, you have to make the decision where is best to raise your kids. I mean, our kids, our oldest kids were born in Australia, you know, and to be honest, we always wanted to raise them here. We love Australia. It's a great lifestyle. I always call it the lifestyle superpower of the world. And, you know, I think it is even in lockdown. It's a wonderful place to be when you're walking along those gorgeous coastal walks and seeing Mm. those beautiful beaches. Um, Yeah, America, I I didn't really want to raise the kids there, to be honest. Um, you know, I mean, I, I've spoken about, you know, just in our area, and we lived in a sort of safe and fashionable area of New York, a place called Dumbo. It's just by Brooklyn Bridge and Manhattan Bridge. In the seven years that we lived there, there were there were over 75 shootings, and 25 of those were fatal shootings. <laughs> now, you know, we didn't cower in fear. We didn't sort of hear the sound of gunfire. It wasn't as if we felt our lives were in danger, but it speaks to the sort of craziness of America right now. Mm. And you know, we were in a real bubble. You know, we mm. were in one of those places that, you know, Woody Allen used to describe as an island off the northeast coast of America. We were sort of detached in many ways from the real craziness. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, my love for America is, is deep and abiding. But, yeah, the romance is, is much of the romance is gone. Yeah. And yet that said, despite all the, the portrait of the sclerotic system and all these problems, we do now have um, a president who's getting stuff passed, who's passing these... Um, extraordinarily large plans, trillion-dollar plans. Um, Afghanistan's clearly been a big problem for Joe Biden, but in another respect, he seems to be outperforming what just about anyone expected of him. What is your thought about how he's going and what his presidency is going to look like in the years ahead? Um, he has managed to get things done. Um, you know, obviously a big infrastructure bill. I mean, the joke obviously during the Trump years was every week was infrastructure week and Trump would never get an infrastructure bill passed. Joe Biden has done that. He's got a big stimulus package through. Um, you know, his mantra is America is back. And, you know, he can point to things like, you know, the Mars thing landing on <laughs> I Mars. I think the Mars thing is a good thing. way to describe yeah. it. They've, they've even got... Um, you know they, they can even claim a sort of galactic success during his his presidency that kind of revives the great days of of the space program but his overriding mission was to heal the country to reunite the country and i just don't see that happening because those fault lines are as angry as ever you know it's abortion at the moment um it'll be race no doubt in a few weeks time There'll be another mass shooting somewhere in America and the gun debate. 
will flare up again. And then we'll come round to the elections uh, next year and there'll be disputes over who's won. I mean, America cannot even agree anymore on who has won a clear-cut election. Biden was the clear winner in 2020. But, you know, a majority of Republicans do not believe that. So Mm. when it comes to his overall mission to sort of end this cold civil war, I don't think Biden is going to succeed. It is funny, isn't it? Because normally when someone loses an election, they slink off. I mean, you mentioned Michael Dukakis in the book, that's name I haven't heard for a while. Um, And Hillary Clinton, (laughs) of course, was fairly quiet even after winning the the popular vote so overwhelmingly. Um, And yet Donald Trump seems to still have a complete um, hold on the Republican Party. People who want to win elections and primaries go down to Mar-a-Lago and kiss the ring, so to speak. Is he going to be the nominee? And um, despite clearly losing last time, could he even win in, uh, in four years' time? Well, I think a crucial point to make, Dom, is obviously so many of his followers don't think he did lose. Mm. And he has created this big lie around his defeat in 2020. And so many of his supporters believe him. I mean, I was actually in Florida when he made his comeback speech after January the 6th. It was a, a CPAC, a conservative conference in, in Orlando. And it was Fantasyland stuff. I mean, Disneyland's just down the road. And this was Fantasyland because he was creating this fantasy that he'd won the election and so many people outside the hall and inside the hall, you know, totally agreed. And he has that constituency that is prepared to back him again. He is the dominant figure in the conservative movement. Any hopes amongst the Republican establishment that January the 6th, the storming of the Capitol, would be the moment that the conservative movement repudiated Donald Trump just didn't turn out to be the case. It turned out to be a moment of radicalization when the Republican Party went even further from you know its, its origin story and its, its, its set of beliefs, which has sort of governed the party for for more than 100 years you know very much is the trump party now um he is the presumptive nominee if he wants to run i think that's the big question is is this sort of campaign a money raising campaign or is this a serious attempt to get back in the white house but if he does go for the republican nomination i suspect he'd probably win it so um just uh, on something a little bit more personal um at the end of the book you reveal that you you actually ended up um getting covid last year what is it like to have COVID? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. relatively few people in Australia have had it. I mean, that's the extraordinary thing, isn't it? Um, you know, we look at the sort of case numbers here and they're so small, relatively speaking, mm. to what we were seeing in America during the height of COVID. I mean, I was living in a city, New York City, that was the global epicenter. At one stage, we had 800 <laughs> deaths a oh. day. Um, and I got COVID early on. I mean... Very early on, and my wife did too, and she had it sort of more seriously than I did, and I had it. It was absolutely horrible. I mean, I lost the taste. I felt like somebody sort of smashed me over the head with a with a hammer. Um, lost the energy for for days. Um, my wife though was struggling to breathe, and a doctor friend said you should really go to hospital. But this was a time when you know ambulance drivers were literally telling people, "Don't get in my ambulance if you can in any way avoid it," because arguably you're in more risk and more danger in a hospital than outside of it right now so we waited an hour or so and Fleur my wife's breathing did improve and thank god I mean she was heavily pregnant at the time gosh it was a really really worrying time I mean I'm a foreign correspondent I've been a lot of nasty places um what I've never had before is is my family living the same story as I was and that was really alarming but you know you're 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 Mm. um you're living that right now in in a kind of you know slightly less extreme way 
Welcome back. <laughs> I hope your I hope your um, uh, immunity holds me. Well, look, I mean, I, I've I've got really good immunity, and and I've also got two jabs in my arm, so you know, I, I feel fairly bulletproof. But you know, you you hear these stories about people getting the Delta virus. So we we've just spent two weeks in in quarantine, in five star detention, and um, we've 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 just got out. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a weird time to come back to Oz because it does feel a little bit like traveling backwards along the COVID timeline. Mm. You know, I came from a city, New York, that was you know not normal, but definitely heading in that direction. And and we stopped off for a couple of months in Britain on the way back. And you know, obviously Britain is pretty vaxxed up and. You know, it's trying to get back to normal as well. So it's kind of strange and ironic. We didn't time our run particularly well uh, that we're back in Oz because yes. for eighteen months we've been looking at Oz like it was this <laughs> COVID Shangri La. <laughs> uh, it was. And we were. had Hollywood these stars here. Lives and so <laughs> it's so it. ironic to um, to see it in this state right now. Actually, can I just ask? Uh, just this is a personal thing. Um, are there shows on in, in New York and Britain? Like, can you put on a Yeah, I mean, in Britain, show? the shows are open again. The cinemas are open again. The restaurants are open again. The pubs are open again. The sports stages, the festivals. I mean, that's probably a mistake because I think the festivals did end up being super spreader events. I mean, you'll have seen the Euro um, Championship, obviously, you know, bit by bit. Yes. They were getting more people in the crowd again. You know, some of those semifinals and finals at Wembley ended up being super spreader events. But, um, yeah, I mean, Britain's decided to to go down that path um america not quite there uh, i think broadway is just opening up um and new york is very much a, a shadow of its former self in 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 many ways but i think september you know it's, it's just after labor day i think a lot of people will start going back to work for the first time in new york mm. since the pandemic began and i think we'll see the sort of big apple returning to some sort of semblance of of normalcy um and uh yeah Hang on a sec, Charles. Are you thinking of doing your live shows that you're going to have to cancel in Australia overseas? Is that your yeah, aim I'm, here? That's what I'm worried about. I've got a whole national tour lined up at the end of the year, and I, I, don't, I think I'm going to. You have won't to be allowed it. to leave. We're living in this bizarre place where you can't even leave the country. Oh. It's it's very very strange. <laughs> just to tie, um, just to get back to America briefly. Finally, Nick. Um, surveying the scene you were up close for so many years is there anyone who gives you hope for the future are there people there who you think might be able to achieve the kind of transformation that america needs or do you think um it's going to be a tribal war for decades to look come? that's a great question and it's a question i really kind of do do think about um because i i hope that i'm wrong i mean i, I end the book saying you know I, I fear more american carnage and that line was actually written prior to january the 6th rather than after it um, and I really hope that my pessimism about America is is misplaced. Um, my worry is that a lot of the younger generation of politicians coming to the fore are pretty tribalistic. They come from the sort of tend to come from the sort of extremes of their parties. Um, I think that is is potentially problematic. Um, you know, you wonder whether the Republican Party will have this epiphany and realise that they do face electoral annihilation if they don't start reaching out to to groups of color but you know i think they'll look at trump and you know he had some success with the hispanic vote and also some african-americans so they will think well that trumpian brand um is viable even in a kind of more multiracial country so um you know the short answer is i'm still really pessimistic I mean, i'm looking for rays of sunshine and i find them hard to see because a moment like covid 
where you thought this is a potentially unifying moment has actually ended up becoming an accelerant of polarization. America has ended more polarized than it began. And the economy has ended up more polarized than it began as well. The beneficiaries of this have been the online traders like Jeff Bezos. Um, and that continues a trend which is, is really problematic. One of the reasons why America has a broken politics is because it has a broken economy. And not everybody's a beneficiary of the American economy in the, in the way that it was in the past. And again, that has become a driver of polarization. And I don't see how that gets reversed in the short or, mid, or medium term. Well, welcome back to Australia, where it doesn't really matter what happens, the coalition wins. <laughs> well, look, it is lovely to be back. And, you know, <laughs> despite the weirdness of this moment, you know, I was walking along the headway this morning on the way to get my coffee, my flat white, at a lovely little, you know, surf lifesaver coffee shop. And uh, I just thought, wow, this is just sensational. So even even in the midst of all this weirdness, you know, it's still very to, to love Australia and to, to have a sense that, you know, we made the right decision to come back. Thank goodness. Well, it's been fascinating. Yeah, just ignore Canberra and uh, look at the beach. That's the way to go. <laughs> um, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, guys. It's a, it's a real treat to speak to you. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Nick Bryant's latest book is called When America Stopped Being Great. In a recent social media photo, he shared a picture of Joe Biden with it on his bookshelf in the Oval Office. Nick's other books include The Rise and Fall of Australia and Adventures in Correspondent Land. If you enjoyed this, we're going to have another in-depth conversation later in the week with John Safran, who's got a new book out about Philip Morris and the new ways that they're marketing cigarettes. Catch you then.